Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to Truest Blood, the official True Blood podcast. I'm Kristen Bauer. And I'm Deborah Ann Wool. And you've been invited in. I want to do bad things. On Truest Blood. I'm so excited to be here with you, Kristen. We're finally doing this. OMG! I'm starting to cry. <laughs> no, it's too early. <laughs> it's never too early. Oh my gosh, Deb. No. I mean, this is unbelievable. We're talking about something that is so big in our lives and so big in so many lives, right? There's no one that I would rather be doing this podcast with other than you, Kristen Bauer von Straten. Uh, You played Pamela Swinford de Beaufort of equally long name uh, on the HBO show True Blood that we'll be talking about. Um, Pam was a a fan favorite, a personal favorite, uh, uh-huh. whenever we got to work together as well. Uh, and yeah, I can't wait to hear the stories that you have from your time on this show. I'm just remembering so much. I loved my scene. Spit it out, cupcake. I'm in the middle of something. <laughs> can't wait till we get to that. You were so amazing as Jessica Hamby, Deborah Ann Wall. I'm so <laughs> thrilled to be doing this podcast with you. Absolutely can't wait to get into it because you and I didn't watch the show as it was airing. So if people haven't seen it, they can watch along with us. It's been really fun already for me to be seeing it with fresh eyes. For the very first time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to be diving into, um, you know, some of the behind the scenes information as well as analyzing some of the storylines and maybe what was going through the minds of the writers and creators at the time and doing little quick bites. that will give you some information about vampires or filmmaking and little fun tidbits of information. I know I'm already learning so much. It's amazing how much I didn't know because we're going to be talking to (laughs) cast and crew the special effects team, the set designer, the creators, the writers, the directors. I can't wait. I can't wait to get into this with you. Yeah, so much. I mean, I think every person we've spoken to so far has talked about how it has made a significant shift in their life, a a real pivot point. Yes. So today, I think apropos of that, we're going to talk a little bit about making a pilot. Like, how do you get a hit show off the ground and running? Um, I think, you know, that'll be a really yeah. interesting thing to dive into. It's so interesting. It's really lightning in a bottle looking back at it. And I can't wait to talk to everybody involved. And this week, we're going to start off by talking to Charlene Harris, who originated all of this. 
Yeah, she wrote the series of books that True Blood is based on and inspired the making of this pilot. Yeah, I hope I hope we are. <laughs> this is our pilot that we yeah. hope will hit the ground running. Right. We're we're <laughs> on our feet trying to find out how to make yeah. a hit show. Well, let's kick things off by starting to talk about episode 101 of True Blood entitled Strange Love and written and directed by Alan Ball. Yep, he's our fearless leader. And now, this week on True Blood. Two years after the invention of True Blood, a synthetic blood substitute, vampires have come out of the coffin. In Bontop, Louisiana, we meet Sookie, a small-town waitress with the ability to read people's minds. What are you? I told you, I'm a waitress. No. You're something more than that. You're something more than human. We also meet her family and her friends who populate this new world where a vampire might just walk into your place of business. And in this episode, one does just that. Oh my God. I think one of us just got his first vampire. Cue Vampire Bill, the first vampire Suki has ever seen, strolling into Merlot's diner and capturing her eye. There is an immediate interest, not least because he is the sole person whose thoughts she cannot hear. I can't hear you. Thank you. I can hear you, but I can't. I'm a star. But just as things were going so nicely, Bill is attacked by the rat trays, local drug dealers that sell vampire blood, which happens to induce a potent high in humans. I understand it makes humans feel more healthy. Improves their sex life. Luckily, while they are draining him, Suki comes to his rescue and cements their attraction to one another. Meanwhile, a local woman has been murdered. Many want to pin it on the new vampire in town, but Suki's brother Jason was the last person to see her alive. He is selfish, egotistical, and a complete horn dog, but he is not a killer. Before we get any answers there, Suki is viciously attacked in the parking lot of Merlots by the rat trays out for revenge. I mean, I think the best place to start is at the beginning, right? So maybe we jump right in with that cold open and really start to dissect that a little bit. In yeah. How do you set up a show? What are the first things you want your audience to know about a series? Right. And just so they know, the audience, I want you to know the cold open. This isn't a term, right? That's true. That's a term. That's Go an ahead. insider yes. term. And it's the, the scene that comes before the credits, the opening credits. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess we call it cold because you don't have any information yet. There's no context to it. Uh, So it's sort of meant to warm you up into the series. Yeah. And this one, we really jumped in with, oh, it's set up so much. It's so well. Well, I think, yeah, to talk about that, we sort of set up the perfect horror movie trope in many ways. You've got a bunch of sexually promiscuous frat kids, you know, college kids. Um, I think even down to the fact that they're wearing white, so that'll show any blood should they happen to get murdered. Yes. And and it's this kind of, we already know what kind of a show we're in when we see these cues. Yeah, Alan talked about that in the commentary, Alan Ball, because he said... Our mind is already going, she's wearing white, she's going to be covered in blood. We've got the vampire behind the counter, and then we've got the redneck getting beer, we assume. And all of that was turned on its head. It's this idea of taking archetype. It's a way to signal to your audience 
what what type of story are we in? Who are these people? Mm-hmm. And the really fun thing is when really good writers take those tropes and then flip them, turn them on their head. And we have yes. a perfect example of this in our opening um, where we think that the goth emo guy behind the 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 counter is our vampire when really it is the the southern good old boy standing in line behind them and and yeah. again it's a perfect setup for the series which is to say this is a really fun vampire series there's going to be blood there's going to be sex yeah but also there's going to be the unexpected you're not always going to be able to tell what's coming up yeah and so smart he's got the tv playing with the vampire yes. spokesperson on with bill maher i mean how great is yes. that? <laughs> that this was on hbo they got bill maher they got bill right and and i forget does she say here exactly because they talk about well vampires coming out of the coffin i mean yes how do we know you're not going to kill people and she says and humans haven't killed people yeah. So it's setting up again that ethical moral, you know, dilemma and, and and what it's doing is it's it's setting up our own biases, our own prejudices. You know, mm-hmm. we already have these ideas in our mind about what a vampire is, who a good person is, who right. do we trust. And this show is saying you need to expand your definition of that. Yes, you need to turn society on its head. Of course, coming out of the coffin you know, yep. is civil rights, gay rights. I'm going to cry. Yep. So <laughs> is this the second time I've cried this episode? Oh, boy. I know our tear tracker. We're going to need like tear tracker, 10, 10 tears to track. Oh, my goodness. And the um, teeth. Right. There is another trope because the mm-hmm. teeth are different. They click in yes, and out. Different than used to. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into this much more in later episodes, I think, as we get into more of the teeth mechanics. But um, he had based it on nature um, Mm -hmm. and the idea that rattlesnakes actually retract their fangs. They fold, flip back up against the roof of their mouth. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted the vampire fangs to live in more of that space. And what one is fascinating about that is it does allow vampires to coexist with humans and not be there's no tell. There's no tell. If they're always there, you can always tell. And and so that that makes them in some ways a little scarier, but it's also Mm -hmm. a great protective device for a vampire themselves. And there was that one line about Alan said in the commentary about how he wanted vampires to not be outside of nature, that they are. Mm -hmm. I thought that was fascinating. Boy, thank God, because I had to loop every line when I wore those fangs. (laughs) You... Were um, I remember going to you and Bill, Stephen, you two could talk in those things and not lisp. I was like this with every single line. <laughs> you got much better over time. You're so sweet. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where you have to get a little used to it. The first couple of lines anyone does with them take some practice. But I also have I have a larger mouth in general. So I had more room to. Uh, uh, you're so kind. I have a huge mouth. I think it was. <laughs> It was sad. So the other (laughs) the other big thing, right, that Mm -hmm. you and I both really were struck by because you and I did not watch the show. So we're watching the show anew with fresh eyes. We are. And it's fascinating for me and both of us to go and our producers like, hey, what were you hit by? Yeah. And we both had us, you know, it's the episodes called Strange Love, but we both were hit by this romance between Sookie and Bill and this chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely the heart of the series 
for the mm-hmm. entirety of it. I mean, there, there's certainly love triangles and yeah. Suki finds different suitors, but I think their connection is what gripped so many people right from the beginning and yes. pulled them all the way through seven seasons of this series. Yeah, it's really staggering, isn't it? And they they read many bills. They did. It was really hard to find a bill, uh, Alan mm-hmm. said. Um, and it'll be fascinating to talk with Stephen and Alan about that process. Yes. But he said something really, really, I think, interesting about why, in a way, a British actor was such a good choice to play a vampire, mm-hmm. which is that often in the UK, they do do a lot more classical theater, a lot more work, things right. that take place in different time periods. So potentially Stephen had a little bit more ease being from another time. And right. that's really what you need in a vampire is someone who feels like they're from another time and place. Yes. I, I, don't know, I, I thought of about 50 things, but of course that's going to be the <laughs> hardest thing with this podcast, right? But like I know all of the actors, you know, we've got three people from Juilliard and yep. all of the actors are so good, well-trained so they could be in this these crazy circumstances and play the reality actually. Yes. And that it's like Star Trek. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. <laughs> and they are all theater actors because that's yeah, we have who, a lot of theater actors and we have a lot of theater actors. And I think and a lot of writers that come from the theater. So oh, in right. many ways it, it was. Yeah, it was bringing together a lot of people whose experience is about, you know, suspension of disbelief, Uh, how, you know, and that's what really it takes to do a fantasy show or a sci-fi show. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's, how do I really truly believe the things that I'm saying, even when they might seem ridiculous? Yeah, that is the thing, because you can't play immortal, quote unquote, but you can play (laughs) my dad might die. Yeah. Or you can pl- you can play, you know, the ecstasy of never aging and also mm-hmm. the sadness of watching everyone around you age. You mm-hmm. can find the more specific pieces within that. Um, so, yeah, so we have this this wonderful combination with Bill and this long history and then this mm-hmm. young waitress who has her own trauma in a way of, of, of having to listen constantly to the innermost thoughts around her, um, which really is is a curse. Uh, You know, I think even if it's not about you, we all hold back the worst of ourselves Mm -hmm. uh, in our in our minds. And Suki then is confronted with that. And how do you maintain that people are good and trustworthy when you hear every inner thought? Uh, So that really must be a real burden for her. And so you can understand the relief she would feel in meeting Bill. And knowing that she could shut that off. Yeah, knowing she could. I mean, I'm thinking of all the thoughts that would be crushing to me if I heard from my spouse (laughs) that that wouldn't mean anything. You know, just when she touches someone, it's even more pronounced. She she can block it somewhat. And this will be fun to to track through the show because these... The True Blood Bible, where we had these rules, like we find out that silver incapacitates vampires. Right. But of course, the amount of silver shifts a little bit throughout the seasons. (laughs) (laughs) The amount of silver required. Kind of shifted a little. I can't wait to get to. Oh, my gosh, Deb. I'm laughing in my mind, but I can't give it that big a spoiler. But her reading minds shifts a little. It shifts uh, a little. It shifts a little. But at this point. When she touches someone, that's established 
that that's when yes. she really so her she could never date and and have that trust until she meets this vampire that everybody mm-hmm. else thinks is deadly. It's a fascinating Romeo and Juliet. Right. And what's really wonderful, because I'm with you, is there is this immediate fear and prejudice from everyone else around her. And Sookie is really the only person, other than maybe Lafayette, Mm. in the bar who goes, you know, no, why? Why would you prejudge him? Let's, you know, and she's very, if anything, curious and interested to go and meet him. And it's especially interesting to me that Sam is so suspicious especially knowing what he's hiding. Yes. That, you know, what what is what is that? And I, I can't wait to speak with um, Sam Trammell about it uh-huh. because, I you know, obviously there's a jealousy over Sookie. Sam is uh-huh. in love, interested in Sookie. Uh-huh. But also knowing that he has to hide who he really is. Yeah. Is there a jealousy of Bill that Bill gets uh-huh. to now come out and say, this is who I am? you know, free and proud. Yes. And Sam still has to stay in his coffin or his closet. And, and you know, what is that conversation and that experience like? Uh-huh. Uh, so again, it's such a it's such a fascinating, complex way to look at our perspectives. And I love on HBO how who and what everybody is is so slowly revealed that in hindsight, Sam has no taxidermy in his yep. office. Yep. And then Bill says to Suki, who are you? He may have even said, what are you? And she says, yeah, I'm just a waitress. I love that line. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. We also get uh, the first incidents of the suke uh, from yes. Bill in this episode. Yes. And Alan, again, has a fascinating story on that, uh, which is that he told her to feel that word in her vagina when and, yeah. Steve said it to her. <laughs> and if you, look if you go back it, and watch the episode, it's a real tight close-up on her face and you see this little thought go through her mind. So good. So, yes, I recommend everyone go back and watch that scene knowing that. Now. Yeah, and Suki, I wonder, I can't wait to talk to Stephen and Alan about yeah. if he just said Suki like that from the beginning. <laughs> because he he's it's his fava beans thing the rest of his life. He yes. said when he goes to the dog park, he's not being recognized, but he's hearing people yelling for their dogs named Suki. Yep. People Suki, come up exactly. to him and say, just say Suki, please say Suki. <laughs> He really says it incredibly well. He does. It's it's just it's a it's a trope of its own now. I think it's a trope a of its own. A lot of women felt that in their vagina. Yes, they did. Uh, I think the other thing we have to mention, you know, before we leave the sort of you know introduction of Suki and Bill is the conversation that they have after she saves him. Mm. I think Alan talked about all of that conversation about my name is Bill. I'm Vampire <sighs> Bill. And she laughs at that because she thinks, oh, your name should be Armand or, you know, yes, something Antoine. that feels vaguely European. Bill? I thought it might be Antoine or Basil. Bill? <laughs> Vampire Bill. <laughs> this is a normal man who became something extraordinary. And that's, and throwing it out to Charlene Harris, right? These are based yes. on her books. He literally lifted that section out of the book uh, because he he thought it was so well well written. Can't wait to talk to Charlene. Another thing that occurred to me as well, when we first meet Bill, and kind of every time, there's this almost campy 
romance novel Mm -hmm. vibe. The lighting changes, the music changes, the ambient sound kind of goes away that that stylistically the choices that Alan has made is to kind of lean into the broody romantic nature of it. Which is kind of fascinating, especially in a story where they're they're maybe leaning on reality. And he says he wants to base it in nature. But when it comes to their romance, it's it's really in a fantasy category. It has that elevated, heightened feel to it, that love at first sight feel. Yes. Uh, And it's such an interesting decision. And again, I think sets up our series to say this is going to be both. And that's okay. Yes. And he talked about that. I can't remember exactly. I have notes somewhere about the terror of intimacy and how he wanted to six feet under was so about repression and that true blood is about the opposite. It's, it's wet. It's sloppy. There's bugs. Chaos. It's It's yeah. What happens when you let it all go? What happens when you let it all go? Yeah. Well, and that, you know, well, again, we'll talk more about the terror of intimacy because it is sort of a perfect metaphor title for what this series represents, which is that intimacy is terrifying. terrifying. And we can represent that literally physically with a vampire biting you and putting your life in their hands. Yes. And then all of the more subtle ways that everyday humans uh, are terrifying to one another in intimate situations. And so we we combine all of that, I think, in this series. Endlessly fascinating to me that this show highlights more how hard it is to be human by having <laughs> characters that aren't human. Yeah, I think you're right. Right? And so much. So much, Deb. This is so fun. We're, we're going we're gonna to get to it all. I promise you. Yeah. for a quick bite, a fun fact about True Blood that you might have missed. Did you see Jessica Stroop in the cold open? She's the sorority girl in the convenience store, and she's been on 90210, The Following, Iron Fist. She's also a scream queen in her own right. She has done the films Vampire Bats, The Hills Have Eyes 2, Prom Night, and Homecoming. So she started off on the right foot with True Blood. She sure did. And she's from the Carolinas. So she's one of two Southerners because Sam is also (laughs) from the South. So she's a genuine Southerner that kicked off the show. Thanks, Jessica. Yeah. So we've talked about the episode a little bit and all the cool little ins and outs of that. But essentially, this first episode is teaching us, you know, what's happened, how vampires came out of the coffin, how that's possible. And so we've gone through all of the really like cool Mm -hmm. ins and outs or some, I should say, not all of some of the cool ins and outs of this first episode. But I'm also curious you know, this is about coming out of the coffin, right, for vampires. It's about the very beginning of the story and how they did that. And so I think it would be fun to talk about how do you get a pilot made? How do you how does a hit show even begin to 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 get made and get out there? It's a huge topic of conversation and and one that I think not, you know, not very many people outside the industry might not be aware of it. So yeah, I can start by giving kind of the general nature of a, a pilot episode, if you're you're not aware. A pilot episode is shot sort of 
solely and alone on its own. And it's used to sell the show mm -hmm. to a network to see if it's a, a viable show that mm -hmm. they want to make. And so it goes through pilot studies and test audiences. Um, it's often structured as the first episode in a series so that therefore you can then use it as your first episode should you get picked up. But one thing I think yeah. to know is that only about a quarter of pilots ever get picked up. And from there, only one or two ever make it to a long running yeah. series. So you're talking about the odds are not in your favor. <laughs> When making a pilot, I know there was one pilot. Oh, so I we could do eighteen. I could yeah. do a whole podcast on on my life and pilots. But there was one where I know I didn't get it because the other lady was half my price because <laughs> we had the same agent. He called me and said, "You didn't get it. She's not as good as you. They admitted it, but she yeah. costs half." Oh wow, wow. So yeah, I mean that's fascinating. And then I think to mm -hmm. even then, once you get the job. Right. You go through that whole process and you get it. An interesting thing to know is that as le at least with actors, directors and writers, you well, maybe not directors, but um, you are mm -hmm. signed on to that show and you cannot do other shows, at least not as a right. series regular until they've decided whether they're picking it up yeah. or not. So you're really banking on the success of this this pilot because mm -hmm. you might pass up other very interesting jobs in order to take a chance on this yeah. one. So it's a risk and a gamble. Yeah, they hold you for like nine months or something, and then they can extend the hold for another small amount of money. And you just are betting mm -hmm. on that horse. You just sit at home and, and hope. And then I think then sewing off from there, once it's greenlit, once it actually is going to go forward, they might reshoot stuff from your pilot because there's feedback yes. and they want to change things. Um, I think yes. one interesting thing is the exterior of Grand's house, Suki's house, wasn't mm -hmm. finished. Um, and that part of it had to do, and we'll talk about this later as well, there was also a writer's strike mid the first season. So True Blood, the first few episodes of True Blood are really spread out in time. So anything in the first episode that you see outside of Sookie's house. So, for example, Sookie in her sunglasses and her bikini lying back. Such a cute scene. That was shot months later. Uh, and they Months just, later because that house was built. The house had Greer. to be built. And obviously they didn't want to necessarily put the money into building that house until they knew the show was going forward. Yeah. So it's a really it's a fascinating piece by piece process that gets you there. Yeah. You know, for True Blood, it was interesting because so I had done like, I don't know, I don't even know, seven <laughs> series or something. I don't even know. 40 pilots. I don't even know. Before <laughs> True Blood. It's all a traumatic blur. And I auditioned as a guest star, possible recurring. Me too. You did? Okay. Yeah. Guest so, star, possible recurring. Oh my gosh. Well, between that and me being a series regular was like too long. Years. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was years. Wow. So I, and I started in episode four and it was the first episode back after the writer's strike. So for mm -hmm. them, it had been a year since they shot the pilot. Wow. It had been so long. I think Anna and Steven now live together. Right. <laughs> a whole relationship had blossomed in the interim. A whole relationship <laughs> had blossomed. Like that chemistry on screen happened. Yeah, it was real. Happened in the pilot. So I, I remember sitting in makeup and listening to Stephen was on one side of me and Anna was on the other side. And, you know, it was just Monday morning banter like, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, I went to see this movie and, you know, went to get Japanese food. And I'm hearing on my left side, went to see that same movie and also got Japanese food. <laughs> and, and it took a while for me to put it together. And finally, I asked, I think, Audrey Fisher, oh. are they... 
are they a couple like in real life? And she goes, oh my gosh, we can't right. like tell people this when they come on the show because it's none of our business to be telling people so we have to wait for them to realize i think it was it was they were so in love it was not a difficult Mm -hmm. (laughs) a difficult thing to figure out i was clueless Um, in my defense i had been filming something else in the philippines because we had been on strike right so you had to leave the country to work you had to go hustle and find other jobs right Well, I had auditioned and Alan was in the room with one of the producers. This is the other thing that happens between when a pilot is shot and becomes a regular show is people get fired. So producers change. There's Mm. always a series regular cast member that goes away. It's very traumatic. So I've had where I got a pilot, it got picked up and the world got announced and it's in the paper and then I got replaced. I w- I've had that happen three times. I thank God I was replaced the last time off of Hung. I was replaced by Anne Hage because mm. then I couldn't have done True Blood. Mm. But it's hard. But even that in itself is fascinating that one, it happens to the best of us. It happens. And two, that, you know, I mean, depending on your v- view of the world, whether it's things happen for mm-hmm. a reason, it does mean that, you know, you've talked about sliding doors, right? Yeah. That, that in some ways, something that feels like it's shutting you off might actually be opening you up to other opportunities. Yeah. And that's really the only way to look at it. It's nice, of course. <laughs> and not and not be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> and not be miserable and not, you know, get more and more insecure. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the fascinating bit of it as well is that it's all it was all kind of on a whim. Um, Alan Ball, again, we'll hear more from him. But the story he tells is that he was late for a or he sorry, he was early for a dentist appointment. Mm -hmm. And so he was wasting some time at a bookstore and he pulled it off the shelf and started reading it and fell in love. Couldn't put it down. True blood. Couldn't put it down. So, yeah, we'll talk to Charlene Harris. Obviously, there's some differences between the books and the show. Uh, which, you know, we'll we'll get into hopefully with her as well as over the course of this podcast. Uh, but now we can see what her experience was like. Yes. Hi, Charlene. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I was tickle pink to hear from you all. Uh, it's always uh, good to remember uh, fun days. And, and I certainly had plenty when I did events with with you all and visited the set and watched the show and reaped the benefits <laughs> of increased book sales. Hey, well, we'll get to that. Uh, Charlene, I hope you're comfortable because I think Deb and I have enough My questions goodness. for 18 hours because we're so, I'm going to cry already, Deb. <laughs> oh. I'm already crying because you started the conversation by saying that Jay said to you, yeah. thank you, I can support my family. Well, like 300 people could say that to you yeah. from the show. Yeah. So you started writing, it said, when you were really young. Are you just one of these lucky people who always knew what they wanted to do and just did it? Yes, mm, I oh am. Oh, my gosh. And I you were know. writing ghost stories? Or what did you <laughs> write? Yes, I wrote ghost <laughs> stories. Uh <laughs> I always loved the macabre and um, Southern. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's just a, I guess I have a Gothic streak yeah. uh, somewhere uh-huh. inside me. And though I don't enjoy being scared, I do enjoy scaring other people. Well, that's a, a fascinating bit. little conundrum there. Yes. Man, I hate practical jokes. <laughs> yeah, so, Deb, go for it. Because she well, had a yeah, lot I've, of interesting things. Well, in a lot of story, questions yeah. about 
about the genre, the mystery genre, as well as fantasy and romance and and horror to a certain extent. Um, and it is interesting that that's potentially not your taste when you're reading, but it is when you're writing. Yeah. Can you speak a little on that? Why, what you think that's about? Um, uh, I think it's because I don't mind giving other people a sense of suspense or tension because right, I right. think I'm going to relieve it. Uh, right. In the, uh, okay. You know, not in a naughty way, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to give them. Although sometimes in a naughty way, Charlotte, <laughs> perhaps There's plenty of that. Plenty of people in, in my signing stories. line shared stuff. Um, they would say, oh, I got your book and me and my boyfriend, we did everything. Sookie did. Wow. It. Going, I know. That is really more information. There's got to be needed. an award for that, right? Something well, I can't imagine what it would look like. <laughs> Um, oh dear! Probably not Edgar Allan Poe. I'm <laughs> no, pro- no, <laughs> no. Uh, I just like to. I think it uh, from what I read, the suspense is lets you live it at a secondhand emotion. Mm-hmm. I think real life is extremely scary. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. and I like the safety of having a writer handling it. Uh, Mm. who is going to give you some resolution, maybe. I've always felt that way about storytelling, that in a way, it's, as a viewer, it's a way to practice very scary emotions, Mm. whether that's grief or fear, that you, you you have a safety net, you have someone that's going to relieve the fear or relieve the grief at the end, presumably, um, but that you can you can practice a little bit. What does it feel like to let myself feel these emotions so that when terrifying or very sad things happen in your real life, you have a little bit of practice at how to process those feelings? I'm wondering a couple of things. One is you're writing murder mysteries, and I'm I'm fascinated by the world of murder because we're all fascinated by it. And it's an interesting thing. And I wonder your thoughts on that. And then also you write as a woman, you write woman characters with a woman protagonist. And is that all of that? Is that because it just comes to you because you're a woman? That's how you see it? Or is it really on purpose also that you want to represent women in a certain way? Because like Deb mentioned, you know, the vampire is even saved by a woman. (laughs) Yes, it's absolutely on purpose because I don't write weak people. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yes, yes. You know, uh, we all want to be stronger. Maybe that's just because what that's what I aspire to be. (laughs) Or maybe I'm, you know, uh, we all want to be stronger than we are. And I don't write weak protagonists. I write flawed protagonists. Yes. We are all flawed. Yes. A perfect person would be a boring person. <laughs> yes. I think a perfect person would get killed pretty darn quickly. Pretty fast. Because <laughs> that yes. would be so irritating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Alan talked about in the commentary for episode one, he was talking about how he loves the messiness of True Blood. You know, how it's about, he said Six Feet Under was about the repression of emotions and True Blood was about the expression of them and being damaged. And and you just write that so well. You know, I'm, I'm not just another fuzzy grandma. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is 
so darn true. Well, I was just saying, it was just because it came up. I'll tell you two things. Again, maybe as as a woman reading the book last night again for the umpteenth time, um, that I really appreciated about Suki that you brought up both times. One is her strength, but that she's also still feminine because I think I was raised in sort of a feminist wave where we were somewhat told that femininity equated with weakness. And so, you know, you, you were a strong, badass woman if you kind of took on more masculine qualities. And Mm -hmm. while there's certainly nothing wrong with taking on masculine qualities as a woman, it did feel that some of my femininity had been demonized a little bit. Um, And so I love how Suki 100% retains her femininity and is in no way impaired in her strength or her intelligence or any of that. Yes. Um, so yeah, you, you had something to say along those lines. Thank you. I knew that yeah. that that needed to be done. I was brought yeah. up in rural Mississippi in the 50s <laughs> yeah. when femininity was everything. And if right. you were the least bit aggressive or assertive, you were uh, tough. Right. And that wasn't a nice thing. Right. You know, women who weren't feminine and nice or were tough. Uh, but I thought, you know, you have to toughen up. This is a bad yeah. world, bad world. Yeah. And you yeah. have to be tough. You have to be strong and you have to assert yourself. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy being a woman. Yeah, I appreciate that. And then and then I also yeah. appreciated, like you said, a flawed character that in a way, you know, Suki is hearing everyone's voices around her and she hears the best and the worst of what their yeah. thoughts are. We are also in her head. And I appreciate that we also hear the best and the worst of her thoughts. Sometimes she's mm-hmm. petty. Sometimes she's, you know, naive. She, you know, and, and the fact that in her brain, her point of view is also, I think, what did we, unreliable narrator or something was the term I learned in high school. <laughs> yeah. But the idea that she has a strong point of view and we're very aware that we're seeing the world through her eyes, which is not a perfect uh, view either. So again, as you said, a flawed character, because we're in her head, you can really feel that and still love her, which is which is wonderful. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, my job here is done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I liked your word was interpreted. I think interpreted, that's such a interpreted, yes. accurate and healthy way to think about that process. Yeah, what is that process for you? Yeah. Well, true blood was my baptism by fire (laughs) because I you know I I had to do press for the first time wow yeah I'd never done that much press and the questions were not questions I was used to answering as a writer Hmm. Uh, and mostly people wanted to ask me what I thought about Alan's interpretation his version Mm -hmm. of what I'd written in a book and at first I thought well, it's a different thing. It's not right. my book. It's yeah. Alan's Alan's vision. Mm-hmm. And people would say, why don't they stick to what you have in the book? I said, well, you can't film a TV show that way. <laughs> right. Because Anna would be on the screen all the time, every episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's just not sustainable. Yeah. Plus... I said, weirdly, the writers of the show might feel like they have some things they want to say to <laughs> Which is a lovely, and respectful this is way. their chance. Writer to writer. Yeah. yeah. After that, it got easier because I got the same questions over and over. Why didn't it like the books? <laughs> you know, I also got questions like, why didn't you let Lafayette live? Because mm. he dies ah. in the books. And I thought, yeah. 
Lafayette in the books wasn't like Nelson on the screen. Right. He was so fabulous. He let him, he got his life back. Yeah. Um, right. In the books, he was, you know, you didn't really miss him once he was gone. He wasn't a major character like Nelson made him. Hmm. So it was, it was interesting turning on the TV every week and seeing what was going to happen and preparing myself for what people would say to me afterwards. After that, after, you know, Midnight Texas lasted a couple of years, which I really regretted because I just loved it. And uh, then the Hallmark series is still going on, even though it's gone past the books by five five episodes. Uh, right, right. <laughs> oh, my <Yeah>. gosh. <laughs> no. They're That's filming, amazing. They're filming number 18 now. <laughs> there were only 11 books, so. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But there again, it's their interpretation of my character and not my character. It's just a separate thing. But fortunately for me, it's a lucrative second separate thing. <laughs> so, Charlene, walk us through the process a little bit. So how did this all kind of come to pass? Well, uh, I had had an option on the books before, but okay. that producer ultimately was not able to get it done. Okay. Uh, so when that option ran out, I had three offers. I had Alan, I had the that guy again, and I had wow. I had a group of three three producers wow. who, who wanted to to do something with it. But when you hear the name Alan Ball, you know <laughs> you know. go. It was an easy choice for I'm you. I'm pretty sure I'm going to go with Alan <laughs> Ball, uh, but but my agent made me talk to everyone. And so I'm, uh, then I was living in Arkansas. So I'm sitting in my office in Arkansas talking to Alan Ball, who's on the freeway in L.A. And I'm just going, this is surrealistic. Wow. Uh, this is so far from my real life that I, you know, I think it's like some cosmic joke. But weirdly, I felt like Alan and I understood each other really mm. well. Huh. And I thought he got me and, and I felt like I kind of got him and wow. I felt like he would really do the best job. And so his people called my person. <laughs> <laughs> Singular person. Yeah, I have I have more people now, but then I had my, you know, my agent and then uh, they started working out and the contract just got thicker and thicker and thicker mm. and wow. thicker and I thought wow we are not in Kansas anymore uh, <laughs> and then the writer's strike right happened right. and I thought this is just never 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 gonna happen and wow. finally Alan sent me the new um you know the opening mm -hmm. yeah and the the credits and I watched those and I told my husband I said we're gonna have to move <gasps> Because oh I could gosh. tell this was going to be so over the top. Oh <laughs> I said, we're not going to be able to live here anymore. And in truth, when we sold our house in Arkansas and moved here 10 years ago, the woman who bought our house was advised to have it exercised. Wow. Oh I'm gosh. so bad. I am so bad. Oh, you are. <laughs> Me oh and my, my bad gosh. self. Remarkable. Yeah. So this alternate world is it's such a fascinating place to deal with so many human social issues. One person online wrote, True Blood really found a way to tackle discrimination wrapped in a potent fantasy metaphor. 
And you... Oh, that's nice. Isn't that nice? Isn't that yeah. <laughs> I know to tackle discrimination wrapped in a potent fantasy metaphor. I'm fascinated by... it. I mean, it's interesting that you had to move because it was discovered <laughs> that you had this... I don't want to say eh, what's a different word than liberal, but you know, this open minded <laughs> attitude, yeah. right? The open minded is the key yeah. word. Progressive, yeah. yes. We stayed for several years after True Blood was on, but uh, people sure looked at me different. It's open mindedness, and that's the yeah. key. Yeah. That's the key. If If your mind is closed, you're not going to welcome any new ideas or anything that upsets your vision of, of the world as it ought to right. be. But opening your mind a little bit is a, a wonderful experience. And I think most people could do with quite a bit of it. Yeah. Yes. And you also deal with something else that's, um, I think of as intrinsically more Southern, but Christianity. And you're a Christian. I am. And Right. And so much of True Blood dealt with the hypocrisy we can see in any area. But we but it dealt with a lot of that in, in the Christianity arena. Yeah. I love how you dealt with that and and the fellowship of the sun. And there was what was the the phrase is in my notes, but it was like it was like Jesus's army or something. God, what right. was that word? I'll find it. Warriors th- for Jesus. Or yeah, like, like that, warriors yeah. for Jesus. It just shows the wrongness in the concept. Yeah, Jesus is not. It's not like that. Yeah. This is yeah. love. God right. is love, and uh, anything that is about hatred is not about God. Right. Anything that is n- about not loving other people is not about God. There it is. And what is so spectacular that you did, too, with evolving vampires is that you took it out of the demonic. It's not about crucifixes or holy water. They're not counter to Christianity. They are just... They are different. Uh, yeah, Natural, and they are different. And, and I think that is the big departure for me from, from many other vampire myths, is that they're, they're not opposite good or Christianity or yeah, religion. They're not inherently evil. One of my fascinations of your books is all the names. Like, how do you come up with these fabulous names? <laughs> Suki Stackhouse, Eggs, just the, the names are Pam, Pam. It's just Pam. It's almost like Bob. It's like, it's so brilliant. Well, I think a lot about it. Uh, it's not, a, not something I do lightly because the protagonist is going to be carrying that name all through and you have to pick something that says something about the character whether they want it to or not mm-hmm. and Pam of course was originally Pamela yes <laughs> and her name in the books was Ravensport or Ravensbrook or something like yeah. that yeah yes. uh, because I wanted her to have a an upper middle class English name because that was yes. what she was in the books Yes. And uh, Suki Stackhouse, my grandmother's best friend, was named Suki. Okay. And I thought, okay, Suki is, well, pin her down as a Southern girl mm-hmm. wh- who comes from an old-fashioned background. And what goes good with Suki? And I just went through the phone book and picked Stackhouse. <laughs> but a lot of times oh, I get so the... Good. The overdue taxes roll from the newspaper. And I go through oh. that when I'm looking for names. 
Interesting. Or I open the phone book and just put my finger down and whatever my finger <laughs> lands on, you know. Old, old fashioned generator. Yes. Yes. Um, so you did a cameo on True Blood uh, in one of the later two. <laughs> you did two. And all Can my kids were on. All, all my ah. kids were on uh, True Blood. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but Julia uh, was yeah. the sadistic nurse at Vamp Camp. <laughs> and they. She said, Mom, I have to wear a hose. And I said, Julia, just go with it. She said, I bet they're not even going to show my feet. And she had to wear heels, too. Oh, boy. And she was just, but she wore her little lab coat and carried her clipboard. And uh, and sure enough, they never showed her below the waist. <laughs> I know. That always drove me crazy because Audrey Fisher always gave me the best shoes after this the thing with I Pam's know. pumps and the main ad. And I would wear those damn shoes. And then I couldn't not wear them. My feet would be killing me, but my height yeah. would change so drastically. So, yeah. right. So I'm wearing these amazing shoes and I would go over to the director and I would put my foot up on Video Village <laughs> and say, look at that. You're not going to film. You're that? missing it. All the glory of this footwear. Yeah. How can you possibly not film that? <laughs> so what, yeah, what were your cameos, Charlene? What, which ones? Um, I was in like in the, I was sitting in, in Sam's bar once. Right. And uh, I had a line. They wrote me a line and put it in my hand on a little piece of paper. <laughs> and they said, do you think you can do this? And I said, I think I can. <laughs> <laughs> and uh amazingly i managed to say my line do you remember and then what it was? i was in the last episode yes i remember the finale yeah my silhouette yeah my unmistakable silhouette of me but no lines but i still get little checks for like a dollar 21 yep 86 mm -hmm. cents yep mm -hmm. those are the hbo residuals they are those good those good old <laughs> hbo residuals you know, Alan Ball said in the commentary, he goes, at one point he said, in fact, what are you doing watching the show and listening to me talk about it? Turn this off and go read the books. You've got yes. to read the books. He was always so great about mentioning the books. And a lot yeah. of producers and directors are not that mm -hmm. polite or respectful mm -hmm. or just kind. Yeah. Yes. I, He's I, kind. He was a he was a class act all the way yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean that that sentiment that you had about Alan being so generous and sharing that. I mean, I think that's what we're coming into this whole podcast with of how can we bring attention to all of our friends, our family that made this, that were really, like Kristen said at the beginning, 300 people that are so grateful to you that you sat down and decided to write these books <laughs> um, and bring yeah. light to that, bring light to yourself. So we wouldn't have dreamed of starting with anyone other than you, Charlotte. That is so kind of you. I've, I felt that when I first came to the set, when you, you all were filming around like Bistano uh, in <laughs> Louisiana, and I saw all the people in all the trailers, and my husband turned to me and he said, this is all your fault. <laughs> and I said, it, he was right. I felt a yoke descend on my shoulders. And wow. I thought, if this doesn't work, I will have let down all these people. Oh. So I was oh. so glad when it worked. Oh. I thought, oh, this is great. 
this is just great. But it was thanks yeah, to I imagine. all the right people being on it. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Charlene. This was just oh. fantastic to get to catch up with you and talk with you. Yeah. It was great to see you all. Yeah. And when people say, what do you most regret? I said, I most regret <laughs> not having Jessica. That's <laughs> right? what I most regret. Or some version of a baby I wish I had thought of her so bad. <laughs> and when they say, what character I've did you like you best? That. I said, Pam. <laughs> oh, look. Yay. Pam. Thank you. You know, another huge gift you gave me is I had such a hard time getting cast, speaking of stereotypes, as a tough person. Mm. They're usually dark. And blonde and blue-eyed is just not... It, it, it. I could be in there frothing at the mouth with the casting director held by the throat, and they would say, no, she's kind of soft. <laughs> so... <laughs> I really think that I was allowed to play this character because the description in the books fit me. So they were, you know, open to it. And what a boy, what a gift Pam was to me. Thank you. Oh, my gosh, Deb, that made my heart sing. Our first big interview. I mean, huge thanks to Charlene for coming in, being our our guinea pig (laughs) this first episode. But I really wouldn't want to have started this with anyone else. You know, I, I... I love what you said about how, you know, she she had this vision and because of her, this world exists. 300 plus people have jobs and sent their kids to school. Millions of viewers. uh, It's incredible. So she's really something special. She is. Well, so much more to talk about. (laughs) Too much more. So much more. (laughs) Have too much to talk about. But uh, please stick around. Oh, my gosh, Deb. I am so excited to do more of this. I mean, next week, we're going to really delve into this incredible cast Mm -hmm. and this Southern place. Yeah. And speaking of Southern place, the opening titles, it's just, just oozing with Southern and... We're going to be talking to Jace Everett, yes. who wrote and performed Bad Things, which we can't even talk about True Blood without that song. Yes, the combination of that song and those opening titles are sort of quintessential it True Blood. It is. I can't wait to get into all of that. All right. Well, everyone, subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And y'all come back now, you hear? Truest Blood is produced by Safe Haven for HBO Max. Executive producers are Janina Gavonkar, Kristen Bauer, and Deborah Ann Wool. Our producer is Gabrielle Gallon, and our audio producer is Christopher Wool. Our theme song was recorded just for this podcast by Jace Everett. Additional music was composed by Timo Chen. And remember, you can watch all of the original episodes of True Blood on HBO Max. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. <laughs>